Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because they anchor us in something which can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. Good morning, Genesis. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-8. through 8. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, Even so we speak, not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, my goodness. So good to see you guys. I have it on gallery view so I can see as many of you as possible. I see Jenny Hill's picture is a pirate. (laughs) <laughs> Hi, Jenny. Oh, my gosh. It's so great. Um, and I see kids and I see people who are sitting alone. I see Scotty with some beautiful banjo and guitar in the background drinking some coffee. Um, I, I see Junia. Oh, my goodness. I think I see Lachlan and Aaron and maybe Linnea. Uh, greetings, you guys. Welcome. Uh, and thanks, Linda, for reading the epistle. You know, you guys, the Bible is a library of books that are made up of many different genres, right? And so some of them are apocalyptic, some of them are gospels, some of them are epistles, some of them are prophets. And this is an epistle. And I noticed that I typically don't preach from the epistles. So let's let that be our first all play question. Why do you think? that I don't typically preach from the epistles. Let's just have fun with this one. Take some shots at your pastor. Uh, (laughs) Kristen Powell, it is like romper room (laughs) when you do gallery view. It's so good. Paul is tricky, Dave Schlenk. Amen. Raise your hand if you have a complicated relationship with Paul. Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right, Jenny. I do love the Hebrew texts, and it's so fun to get into the languages with Hebrew and stuff like that. So, yes, 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 indeed, indeed. 
Uh, what else? Why do you think I don't do the epistles? Letters are locked in a context, and it's tricky. Thanks, Scotty. I'm sure there's lots of other uh, answers we could give. I find that I bounce back and forth between the Gospels and the Hebrew Scripture readings just because I love story. You know what I mean? And sometimes I find the epistles a little too preachy, a little too didactic, a little too one answer. But because the Bible is a collection, a library of books, uh, I think sometimes it's important to tackle those things that you don't typically go to, right? So I wanted to challenge myself this week and do 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so I'll do a two-minute roundup. Apologies that I can't do the fun little video with the kid and the funky music. Uh, you know, days gone by and pre-recorded video and such. But 1 Thessalonians is an epistle, and epistles are pastoral letters that are written from one of the apostles, many times Paul. But you'll notice if you look at 1 Thessalonians that this one is written from three people, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And it's written to this house church in Thessalonica, in which Paul had founded several years earlier, but now he finds himself separated from them, because that's what Paul and these guys basically did. They would plant house churches, they would leave them, they would appoint leaders, and they would move on and go plant another church. That's how they spread the news of Jesus all throughout the Gentile world. And so there could be a lot of reasons why you might write an epistle. One, you might write them to encourage a group of people who are suffering, and there was a lot of suffering back in the first and second centuries, um, to affirm a group of believers who were suffering. To You also might, uh, and you find this sometimes, uh, apostles will write letters to sort of redirect them when they had lost the plot. And redirecting is probably a kind and soft word for saying to sort of critique them when they were going astray, right? So they would write them a letter and they would say things like, I've heard that uh, two of you are quarreling over a matter, and I want you to stop it. <laughs> That's just hilarious. Like, so you have to imagine uh, these letters would be delivered, and then they would be read uh, in that community, you know? And so, if it, like, in some letters, they name certain people that are having these arguments. And so you can imagine, like, the reader reading the letter, and then all of a sudden, you know, Cynthia and Lydia are sitting there having having their issues called to the table. How embarrassing right? And then those letters would get passed around to the different communities. And so those communities would go like, oh yeah, we've heard of Lydia and Cynthia and their arguments and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, but there's also um, a reason why you might write a letter and you might write a letter to critique certain outside groups of people who had sort of passed through town, spreading a different kind of a gospel, spreading a false gospel. And in today's portion, in second in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8, it's a little unclear what the issue is other than it seems as though Paul and his fellow leaders, Silvanus and Timothy, had experienced great opposition and maybe even slander, either by an outside group or by perhaps some people within the group at Thessalonica. So they wanted to set the record straight. And the tone of these verses, I feel like, is very heartfelt, it's emotional, it's not angry, it's gentle, but there are some really interesting things that are brought up, and I want to just focus in, you guys, on verse 5. First of all, is there any questions about historical context before we 
move on. So in the first century, Thessalonica is a Roman colony. So they're under Roman rule, paying Roman taxes, living under the Pax Romana, which we'll talk about in a second. But any questions about the history of the first century, and this is Thessalonica is in northern Greece, just to set yourself in the right spot. Any questions? Pause for coffee. All right, let's move on. If a question comes up, I'll pause to answer it. So verse five, we kind of get to the crux of it. And Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy write, as you know, and as God is our witness, that's like saying like hand on the Bible, here we go. We never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed. That's not how we came. We came with different motives. Now, words of flattery, the word, the Greek word there, nerd alert. Danny Cook, I know you're loving this, nerd alert. Kolakeia means telling someone what they want to hear while ignoring their best interests, okay? Telling someone what they want to hear while ignoring their best interests. Paul says we didn't come with that kind of words of flattery. It also might mean overloading them with compliments so you can take advantage of them, distract them, and get to a different mode of thought. Get them to think something that you want them to think versus what's in their best interest to think. So let's do another all-play question. Where do we see that happening in the world today? Words of flattery, telling someone what they want to hear while ignoring their best interests. Definitely politics on both sides and all sides. Absolutely. Right? Where else do we see it? Do you think parents ever do this with kids? Ouch! Do you think a boss ever does this with an employee? Why would you use words of flattery, telling someone what they want to hear while ignoring their best interests? Why? Here's that's an all-play question. Why would you do that? In our marriages, yes. Thank you, Jim and Holly. Yes. Oh my gosh, that is where we do it. Uh, codependency, Rebecca, 100%. That's why we do it. Great answer. Anyone else have an answer? To avoid conflict. Yes, Danny. Absolutely. Uh, Allie, because being uh, being vulnerable is difficult. Yeah. So like if maybe the opposite of words of flattery is just showing up with your courageous self, that's difficult. Uh, maybe more of an employee to a boss to get something. Totally, Hannah, right? We're, we're trying to manipulate the words so we can get something we want <laughs> to protect their feelings if you see them as fragile. Yeah, Anne, totally. Anne from Washington, let's give it up. So our listeners from Washington, uh, it's easier, the Chamberlains, 100%. Because parenting is exhausting, Reagan. I will give you 1,000 Torah points for that, Reagan. <laughs> 1,000. Jenny, to get what we want, 100%. Carry to avoid being like those people who are too confrontational. Oh, yeah. You guys, this word, kolakeia, 
is a little bit like Minnesota nice, isn't it? It's sort of the Minnesota passive aggressive way of getting what we want. We load on the flattery, we leave out some of the you know things that probably people would need to hear so that we can get what we want, right? Lots of great answers. Christine and Ugo, hello you guys. Challenging people even in the ways they need to be challenged does not score us popularity points. 100%. Uh, Minnesota, nice to your face. Yes, Reagan, for sure. So we can see this word, kola uh, kei'a, and Paul might be tempted. He, you know, he brings it up. So someone's either accused him of doing that, or he wants to say, like, listen, you guys, remember, remember when I was with you, I didn't do that with you. I shot straight with you. I was, I cared for you, but I also told you the truth. Remember that. Like, he's, he's, getting them to remember that. So he says, I didn't come with words of flattery. And he also says, I didn't come with a pretext for greed. So that's a little more straightforward. Pleonexia is the Greek word. And that basically means like a kind of greed which might lead to extortion or fraud. You know, like he might be, he might have come in and said, hey, we need to raise a bunch of money for this church planning movement only to line his pockets. He says, you guys, you've seen my suffering. Uh, I And I didn't ask for money from you. I could have, but I didn't, he said in a previous verse. So Paul's defending himself here, but not in a defensive way, right? Um, okay, Will, you, you have a question here. What is the shameful mistreatment at Philippi? Paul is referring to in verse 2. This is one of those delicious uh, things that we don't know exactly what, but we can assume at Philippi there was either mistreatment from without like, so from the Roman Empire, he was hassled, he was harried on the way from here to there. He might have been beaten up. Many times he, he records in other epistles uh, that he's been whipped and suffered through uh, shipwrecks and all that stuff. But also many times there's conflict from within. And so people from within Philippi are saying to Paul, you're not the legit leader that other people think you are. So he's dealing probably with those two things, those two pieces of mistreatment. That's, that's a great question. And so he says, I, I'm not coming with flattery or a pretext for greed. So let's do another all play question. Okay. Paul is a, an apostle. He's a religious and spiritual leader. We live in a time where we don't really trust many of our religious and spiritual leaders, right? We've seen lots fall and we just live in a time where there's been lots of abuse. So here's, here's my question to you. In your experience, how do you know when you can trust a religious or spiritual leader? What kinds of things do, does she or he exemplify that makes you trust them? What are the things? Do let me repeat the question as you're thinking about answering. What are the things that if you do trust a religious or spiritual leader or leaders, what do they do that make you want to trust them. Uh, from Reagan, when they admit their faults, 100%. Katie, when they show their vulnerability. Uh, and when they when they don't have to have it all figured out or, or their church's way is the right way. Yeah, totally. Uh, Kara, consistency and honesty. Hannah, honesty and humility. Yep, that's so good, you guys. What are some things that make you or be able to trust a religious leader or spiritual leader. And then, 
okay, when I sense in myself that the words they speak ring true. Thanks, Jim and Holly. Steve Shawnee, they invite and welcome other voices and perspectives, 100%. They don't just make their own voice amplify. Jenny Hill, when they associate with the least of these. Yeah. Kara, when they share power. Yep. These are some of the things that make us trust spiritual leaders. And this is what this text is really all about, you guys. It's about these three leaders who we're going to find out later who came to really dearly love the community and who treated them gently uh, in a context where, uh, and we're going to talk about this in a second, in a context of Roman rule, which promised one thing but delivered it in a way that didn't make it seem true. Uh, and when it isn't about the show, 100%. So here's another question. This might be a harder one. Feel free to pass on it if you need to. But um, some of you I know have experienced trauma and even abuse from religious leaders and spiritual leaders. And it's led to a lot of suffering. And so what are the results of being traumatized and abused by a religious leader that maybe does use form of words of flattery and maybe does lead to pleonexia of the 20th century variety, 21st century variety. What are some of the results that you've experienced or you've seen your friends experience when leaders aren't honest and humble and vulnerable, when they don't share power, when they're not consistent or honest? I know this is a hard one even to reflect on, right? It's like, do I share it? Uh, yeah, Dave, when you see pastors with private jets, it makes you wonder like, okay, where does my hard-earned money go? Um, exactly. It seems like hypocritical to be standing up for the name of Jesus who stood up for the least of these while perhaps spending extravagant kinds of money. Uh, skepticism of all spiritual things. I think you're right, Jim and Holly. It makes When you've lost trust in spiritual leaders, it makes you be skeptical and cynical of any church or spiritual reality, right? Uh, Betsy, it creates unnecessary tension in their community, 100%. There's back and forth, and um, and um, Jenny impacts how I view God in the church. Yeah, it's the I think the the effects are really wide ranging and wounding. So this is why it's it's important, I think. And let's even name it this complicated relationship we have with Paul, <laughs> who was a human being. We don't like to. Can we just admit? And I'm saying this too. As I've sat under many religious leaders, I've been skeptical, I've been cynical. Can we admit that we don't, we want our leaders to be vulnerable, but we also kind of don't want to treat them as human beings? <laughs> Can we just admit that that's probably true? Um, but having said that, that doesn't excuse, I, I want to be very careful, it doesn't excuse any kind of trauma or abuse. That's a different category. When there is trauma and abuse, I think spiritual leaders, the Bible has a lot to say about spiritual leaders, Ezekiel 34 and other places, that pastors who um, traumatize their flock, um, that's one of the worst deals in the world. It causes people to confuse the baby in the bathwater, 100%, Christine. Uh, people get confused about what the important things are. So I want to move on to verse 8. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you've become so dear to us. I love that verse. 
so deeply do we care for you that we were determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. So lots of all play questions this time. Uh, what's the gospel? That's an all play question. What is the gospel? Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy said, so deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. What is the gospel of God? Answer it any way that you want to. Answer it according to how you grew up believing what it was. Answer it according to what you believe it is now. Answer it according to what you think it's not. Katie Troughton, love. I love it. Hannah, love others as you love yourself. Yes. Joan eagerly waiting for the quote coming up here. What is the gospel? You know, it's so interesting, right, when I ask the question, because many of us, not all of us, but many of us grew up in churches where it's like the word gospel is said over and over again. And the phrase gospel, you know, it's like, we should have this one kind of down, shouldn't we? <laughs> and yet, like, <laughs> we probably all have lots of different answers. The kingdom of God is at hand. So that's Joan. Way to go, Joan. I like that. That's the announcement that Jesus made so frequently. The kingdom of God is at hand. Danny Cook, a message of hope that God has been and is and will continue to restore all things. Whew, that's good. Uh, Rajan, the story of Christ. You guys, look at all these answers. They're amazing. From Will, God reigns. God reigns in Christ as above, through, and in all. Whew, that's just hearty Colossians 1, Will, right there, babe. Nice haircut, by the way, Will. That's handsome. That's very handsome. Um, from Scott and Kara, the good news that the kingdom we are citizens of is not earthly, but it's bringing Eden, the Garden of Eden, delight back to earth. You guys, I love this. Are you kind of soaking this in, sinking this in? I mean, the gospel, the good news, the good news. Uh, from Katie, the immutability of God. Yeah, and immutability, the unchanging nature of God's, I'm going to just continue on with that, God's mercy, God's grace, that that doesn't change. Um, from Hannah, welcoming and caring for all peeps. <laughs> yes, if only we could get Dave Schlenk to post a, a an image of a of a peep right now we would be we would be settled and secure so here's here's a question that we could have asked right after that and that is well when we say what's the gospel um the gospel of god was not the only gospel in the first century did you know that there was a gospel of rome remember thessalonica was a roman colony uh, it was part of the Roman Empire. It was a center for trade, import, and export. And when Paul arrived there, probably between 41 and 54 CE, the Thessalonican citizens had erected a statue to Caesar Augustus, inaugurating a new era of life and vitality called the Augustan era. So the gospel of Rome was also called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it was this idea that a new era of peace had been ushered in through the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome, which is spreading all throughout the world. And it had come through our Lord and Savior, our Kyrios and Soter, Caesar Augustus, the Son of God. So the Pax Romana promised 
global peace through the military domination of Rome. This is how it worked. When a new colony like Thessalonica fell to Roman dominance through the, through the Roman military, here was the trade-off. All the citizens who submitted to, to the required subjugation, which is heavy taxation and emperor worship, would now receive protection from the common enemies and participation in a new vibrant economy. So the, the promise was protection from enemies, and we have the most mighty empire and military in the world, and you can now get rich through this vital um, trade because we're going to bring roads and commerce to your city. And that's really, really good news, right? So whenever a new colony was dominated by Rome, a messenger would go forward with a euangelion, with a gospel, an announcement of good news saying, hey, yet another colony has entered the Pax Romana, and now they're going to experience a new era of peace and vitality. That was the reality in the first century. So all play question, for whom is the Pax Romana good news and for whom is it bad news? And Anne, you're right. It sounds like the American gospel I hear preached as the gospel of God, 100%. Let's just call it what it is. For whom is that Pax Romana good news, and for whom is it not good news? Is that a little too much of a leading question? That probably is, you guys. Let me just answer it. <laughs> it's good news for the people who are getting rich, for the Roman Empire, for Caesar Augustus, and it's bad news for the people that are getting subjugated. That's a bad deal, and we all know it's a bad deal. When those on top dictate the terms for what makes life good for those on the bottom, that's never good news for those on the bottom. People on the top aren't allowed to say, hey, your life is going to be great if you just agree to our terms. It's never worked that way in the past. It never will work that way. And so you can see, you guys, that the flatter words of flattery, Coelichia and Pleonexia are hidden within the Pax Romana. Can you not see that? I know you can see that. So this house church movement, which was founded in Thessalonica, they declared that Jesus was Coter and Syrian, the Syrios, uh, Kyrios and Soter. Jesus was Lord and Savior. And Jesus, not Caesar, was the primary benefactor of a new era of peace and prosperity. And in so doing, they would have stood in direct opposition to the imperial religion. The gospel of Jesus was the, an idea that a new era of peace and prosperity had come, not through military dominance, but through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has promised, as Dan said, the renewal of all things everywhere, not through military domination, but through the Son of God, God himself hanging on a cross and becoming the final scapegoat to end all scapegoating. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19 says this, So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And it was given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, to herself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. 
So you guys, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ stands in opposition to any message of empire, which says that the peace is going to come through military domination and economic prosperity. That's not the gospel. That's a gospel. It's just not the gospel of God. The gospel of God clearly spells out reconciliation of all things, all things being made new through the death, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I mean, that is an invitation and a confrontation, right, to all of us. What gospel are you announcing? What gospel are you believing in? What gospel are you sharing? And what gospel are you living out? You know, that's a confrontation to me. I'll take it. My voice is going up. Uh, so verse eight, so deeply, I got to wrap this up. My timer is telling me I'm way over time. So deeply, verse eight, do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you've become so very dear to us. So when I was a younger pastor, uh, I talked about accepting the gospel receiving the gospel. I talked about it as if it were a legal document that you could sign. As long as you believe these things, you sign your name, you get end-of-life benefits. And maybe in some ways there's a sliver of truth to that. I'm not even sure. But I now see it differently. Um, I now see that announcement of the gospel as end-of-life benefits in exchange for signing your name on a dotted line as containing some kolakeia, some words of flattery. I, I see that as now as containing some untruth. Now I think about joyfully entering into the flow of the gospel of God, right? Like jumping onto a raft, floating down a mighty river, which is always flowing toward reconciliation, always flowing toward making all things new, not just some things for certain people who believe certain things, but renewal of all things everywhere for everyone, people sharing their lives with each other and not counting any trespasses against each other. I look, I look at this river as uh, a community of people who are flowing down toward the mighty ocean of the kingdom of God on this river who, have, who have, are understanding that each other has become very dear to each other. And we want to share the flow of reconciling love with each other. We want to share our very lives with each other. And the, 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 the main thing can be kept the main thing, which is Jesus has come to make all things new. And it really doesn't have anything to do, and I love Carrie's uh, comment here, if our guy has the power, then we feel peace. You know, we have to just, especially during this season, you guys, we have to climb out of that narrative that if our guy gets the power or keeps the power, then the great economic prosperity will come. That's words of flattery, and we know it. That doesn't mean you don't care about who's in office. You care about it. As I said in my email this week, we fight for justice through voting. We fight, we advocate for people through changing laws. We engage in the political process, and it really does matter. It really, really does. And it's not the end-all, be-all. It really isn't, and we know it. And we have to stake, as Christians, stake our flag as engaged in politics for the sake of the renewal of all things, 
insofar as it can make change, but also our greater identity is in the kingdom of Jesus, which is making all things new through radically different, uh, radically different ways than the ways of empire. And we just have to say that is the gospel of God. The kingdom of God is coming. It's coming through the person of Jesus. It has already erupted into our midst and it will continue to flow down the river of reconciliation. And the question is, will you joyfully, freely jump into that flow? I think that's the question. Genesis, that's our question right now in this, in this time. Will we be that community, right? Imperfectly, whoo, fits and starts, whoo, but learning to love God, others, and ourselves wholeheartedly as we become uh, apprentices of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Endings are a place where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions, questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.